Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Why don't we begin by standing and we'll begin in prayer. Today is uh, just a week from St. Michael and All Angels, which is the feast day for this parish. We won't get to celebrate it this year because it falls on a Sunday. But I'm going to say a prayer uh, for those who are members of this parish in gratitude for their hospitality to us tonight. The Lord be with you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. O God, who year by year renewest unto us the day of consecration of this thy holy temple, dost ever bring us again in safety to thy sacred mysteries. Graciously hear the prayers of thy people, and grant that whosoever entereth this temple to ask for blessing may rejoice in the obtaining of all his petitions. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Father Eric Bergman is a Catholic priest of the personal ordinariate of the chair of St. Peter. He serves in Scranton, Pennsylvania, as the pastor of St. Thomas More Catholic Church, a parish of converts to Catholicism who have retained certain elements of their Anglican heritage, most notably the celebration of the Anglican use of the Roman Rite of the Mass. Formerly a clergyman of the Episcopal Church and a convert to Catholicism himself, Father Bergman was ordained to the priesthood in 2007 through the personal provision of Pope John Paul II. His articles have been published in Anglican Embers, This Rock, and Catholic Men's Quarterly, and he has spoken across the United States about the work of the St. Thomas More Society. He has spoken also for the Institute before on the Lambeth Conference, and I do believe we have CDs back there on the Lambeth Conference. It's honestly one of the better talks I think we have ever hosted at the Institute. It was so well done, uh, and his CDs are back there. He also came this past Lent to preside over our Latare Vespers service on Latare Sunday this past year. I will conclude with a quotation from Sacred Scripture and invite Father to come forward for those that have their Bibles open to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7. I know we very often uncomfortably chuckle at this text, but it is a very serious text that our Lord places before us. Matthew, chapter 7, verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. I was just speaking with one of the parishioners here at St. Michael's, which is a wonderful parish, about how many people attend on Sunday, and the number of people that heard the announcements about this talk. And I'm not going to pretend that the Institute of Catholic Culture is the place of salvation. It is not. But the way is difficult. And the Lord says there are few that find it. And the few that find it must leave everything behind. That is not an easy thing to do. And that is why the Lord says few actually do that. 
I think we have tonight with us a man who took those words very seriously when he decided to leave his income, the stability of his former life, his friends, everything he knew as normal in order to make, I would guess, the largest, the greatest leap of his life to join the Catholic Church, not knowing what the Lord had planned. He did not have a letter on his desk saying that he would be ordained a Catholic priest. But he did it. The way is narrow that leads to eternal life, and there are few that follow it. I think tonight, as we hear the words of Father Eric Bergman, we need to take those words to heart. Have we, as the Lord says, taken up our cross and followed him? If we have not, the road is wide that leads to perdition. The Lord gives us time on this earth, the time that we have now to make that decision to follow him. I pray for all of you, and I ask you to pray for me that we all make that step together. Please join me in welcoming back Father Eric Bergman. Thank you very much, Deacon. He gave you my name. I'm Father Eric Bergman. I, was, I am the pastor of a church in Scranton. It is a church of converts. I'm a uh, convert since 2005, and about, oh, 150, 200 members. It's hard to count. It's amazing how uh, uh, the growth that we've experienced in the last few years, especially the last year and a half since we bought our, our church. And I wanted to begin by just giving you a little bio about myself. I was one of five children of uh, people who actually had become Episcopalian as adults. My mom and dad became Episcopalian in 1967. My mom had been uh, raised Methodist. My dad had been raised uh, Presbyterian. And my mom and dad both made careers as social workers. My mom worked for the United Way, and my dad was a supervisor uh, for the Department of Public Assistance in Philadelphia County. And because they didn't want me to be raised in the suburbs of Philadelphia, and because they couldn't afford to send us to parochial school in the city, they decided to raise us in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, which is about 70 uh, miles south of Scranton and 60 miles north of of Philly. It was, uh, when I was growing up, a steel town, uh, very much an urban setting for me to go to high school there. And uh, I went to public school, and while I was in ninth grade, I was about, uh, oh, 80 pounds, and uh, four foot 11. <laughs> so I attracted all kinds of unwelcome attention. And, uh, and so uh, I found uh, my experience beginning in ninth grade and going all throughout the whole four years to be one of almost unremitting violence. I was uh, what people today would say bullied, but the, uh, the, the good part about my bullying is that I always fought back and usually bested my opponents. In fact, I never lost a fight when I was in high school. And, The problem, though, is that many of the people uh, with whom I had these altercations were Puerto Rican. The uh, steel had very few men left after the draft happened during the Second World War. And so they imported people who came, uh, who were Americans, obviously, because they're from Puerto Rico, and they worked in the steel. But when the war was over, the men came back. And the Puerto Rican people in Bethlehem stayed, and many of them continued to work in the steel. But there was a sort of division, a racial division in the city at the time. The south side of Bethlehem was predominantly Hispanic, 
and uh, the west side where I was from and north Bethlehem were uh, predominantly uh, white, but Protestant for the most part. I mean, the south side was traditionally Catholic, but most of my classmates, most of the people with whom I went to school, besides the Puerto Ricans, were Protestant. So, but it, it was not a religious division. It was really more of a, of a racial one. I was, as I said, uh, had, had a number of altercations. One time a girl was... Uh, I was walking through the hallway, and I had my books in my hand, and a girl took my books right out of my hands and threw them all over the floor and said some unkind things. And I went home from school that day because was, there was a bunch of men standing, uh, young men standing against the wall, so uh, I couldn't do anything. I was powerless to do anything. I was so frustrated, so angry. I came home, and I used a racial slur. And... Uh, you know, think back, think about it, thinking back about it, it's uh, almost, uh, in, in, in many ways, uh, uh, very ashamed of what I said. But my father, he said, don't ever say that, you might marry a Puerto Rican. <laughs> so I thought, you know, what a bizarre idea. <laughs> uh, so I couldn't wait, having experienced this really violent uh, upbringing, I couldn't wait to leave Bethlehem and go somewhere else. So I came down here. I actually, uh, I actually graduated from James Madison University in 1991. And my desire was to become a diplomat, to work for the State Department and uh, travel the world and live in different embassies, be anywhere but Bethlehem. Uh, so when I was a senior in college, I took the Foreign Service exam and I passed it. So the State Department granted me an interview and between the time that I passed the Foreign Service exam and uh, before my interview, it was 10 months. So I went to London. And in London, I had my first conversion. For the first time in my life, I met people who weren't like me, who looked nothing like me, many of whom didn't even speak the same language. I mean, we could obviously communicate in English. But I met people from all over the former British Empire, and they weren't threatening. It was the first time in my life that I had experienced diversity and not felt threatened by it. And I knew for the first time that God loved people that were different from me as much as he loved me. Now remember, I was a Protestant, so I had never, I had never experienced the sort of richness of the diversity of the Catholic Church when you see so many different ethnic groups confessing the same faith. I had no experience of that. I had been raised Episcopalian, and so for the most part, my uh, the parish in which I'd grown up was pretty uniform. Most of us were of English descent. I'm Bergman, obviously, is Swedish, but my, my grandmother was uh, actually an immigrant from Canada, English and, and Welsh. So most of us all had pretty much a similar background, and I had never experienced, you t might take it for granted as Catholics, but I, I, uh, for the first time in London, I met people that didn't threaten me who were not like me. And uh, so what happened was really an eradication in that time that I spent living and working in London, an eradication in my mind of a false dichotomy, the false dichotomy that says there's good people who are of my background and bad people who are of the other ones. The real dichotomy I understood when I was in London, and I had no idea at the time that I was ever going to become a Catholic, but I understood while I was in London that the difference, if there's a dichotomy at all, it's one between those who are faithful and those who are unfaithful. And it really began to prompt me to consider a call that I had felt since I was 17 to the Episcopal priesthood. Now, understand, I didn't think I was called to the Catholic priesthood. I didn't know that the Lord was calling me to the Catholic priesthood when I was 17. I know that now, but at the time I didn't know that. And so I just said, I need to consider this call the Lord has placed on my heart. 
So I came back from London, in many ways a changed man. I came back and I interviewed at the State Department. And I went through the whole days. It was a whole day interview. And at the end of it, they had an exit interview. And I was, uh, I failed. <laughs> they were kind enough to tell me why. They said, you're too honest. So... But think about it. What do diplomats do? They do what their country tells them to do, not necessarily what is of their convictions. They, ha they have to do what their government orders them to do in many ways. And so what I should have understood was not a fit for me. I finally confirmed that. I came home and I told my pastor, my Episcopal pastor, that I thought that I was called to the priesthood. And he said, we've been waiting for you. So I got a job at the church. I was the verger, which is really like a glorified sexton. I would open up the church and close it, but I also had a liturgical role. And that meant that I had to tell people what to do within the context of liturgy. Many Episcopalians are very high church and have a lot of things to do within the context of worship. And so one of my jobs was to tell people what to do. And so at a wedding one day, I was in the sacristy, and they had invited the local Catholic pastor uh, from the parish just up the street to convalidate a wedding between a Protestant from our parish and the Catholic parishioner. And his name was Father Vincent York. And I had just read in a magazine, some secular magazine, about Blessed John Paul II's encyclical, The Splendor of Truth, Veritatis Splendor. And we began to talk about it. And a couple days later, Father York was on my doorstep. He found out where I lived and came to me and said, here's a copy of that encyclical if you want to read it. And I thought, well, okay, thanks. So <laughs> I, I, I found... Uh, Relativism. I was exposed to this idea of relativism, that there is no absolute truth, and this is what really Blessed John Paul talks about. He talks in about the clash of the absolutes, that is to say that if there is no absolute truth and, and we are not all accountable to one authority to whom everyone must answer, then everybody's truth is an absolute truth. And what happens when my absolute truth differs with yours? Well, there's conflict and ultimately chaos. So this really was the encyclical that put me on the road unwittingly. I was on the road to the Catholic Church long before that. But that's when I first began to think, maybe this is something I should think about. So the following year I went to seminary with this encyclical all marked and everything. I had it highlighted and everything. But I was raised Anglican. I just figured this is the path I'm supposed to go on. I never thought I should become Catholic. I still hadn't thought about it, that I really seriously considered becoming Catholic. So I went to seminary. And in seminary, I had a professor who was a Catholic nun. Her name is Margaret Farley. And hopefully you're not familiar with any of her work. Uh, she is uh, off the wall. But she helped me in my journey into the church because she was a moral theology professor. And she would talk about, here's the Catholic position... And that was easy to find, just went into the uh, catechism. But then she would say, well, here's what Luther taught. Now, they, she couldn't really say what Lutherans taught, because that's you know, sort of fluid. And she couldn't say, here's what Presbyterians teach, because again, that's fluid. So she would say, here's what Calvin taught. And I said, wow, they have popes too, they're just dead. But then, <laughs> then I realized what I came to call the problem of Luther's son. The problem of Luther's son is this. If you reject all that your fathers have taught you, you can have no expectation that your son will listen to you.
And this is what Luther did. He rejected what his fathers had taught him, and then, of course, his sons, Lutherans today, don't listen to him. Do you know Martin Luther thought contraception was absolutely abominable? Could you imagine Lutherans saying that today? No. Why? Because the, every generation of Protestants just rejects what the fathers taught. That's what Luther taught. You reject the fathers. So, every generation gets further and further and further away from where they had originally been grounded. So, that began to weigh heavily on me too. That where is authority in Protestantism? Because it seems to change. It seems the only tradition they have is to change the tradition. So I, again, was not seriously considering becoming Catholic or anything. I really, at this point, hadn't considered it an option. And I was ordained a deacon and assigned to a church in Scranton, where I have now lived for more than 16 years. I was assigned there by my Episcopal bishop in 1997. And in 1998, my brother got engaged. And I had been assigned to a church where the pastor gave me a lot of what people would call free time. Now, I didn't use my time goofing off. I spent it in my office reading. And my brother's wedding led me, I said, if I'm going to do my brother's wedding, I actually have to give him some sort of counseling, right? I'm going to have to talk to him. I was already married, <laughs> but I didn't know anything about marriage. And uh, <laughs> I was going to have to tell my brother what it meant to be a husband and father. So I opened my Bible and tried to look somewhere for that, and I remembered Ephesians 5 from my uh, seminary training. And I first realized, reading Ephesians 5, that the Lord has specific roles for men and specific roles for women, that this theology of androgyny that we often encounter in America, where there's almost uh, no differentiation between the sexes and treats uh, men and women as though they're interchangeable. I mean, the most recent manifestation of this is gay marriage getting passed all over the country. Ephesians 5 really convinced me that this theology of androgyny was a lie. And at the same time, I began to read the Gospel of Life, and I found the real price that we pay when we accept a theology of androgyny, the interchangeability of the sexes, and the, the, the biggest price, of course, is the horror of abortion, 1.2 million a year. When I was in college, it was 1.6, 1.6 million abortions a year in the United States alone. So I read the Gospel of Life, and Pope John Paul really lists all the horrors of the culture of death. Uh, the Gospel of Life, of course, came out after Veritatis Splendor. Veritatis Splendor talks about relativism, and then the Gospel of Life then elucidates the horrors that proceed from a relativistic morality. So I'm beginning to really conceive of how this uh, abortion culture in which we live, and I say, how did we get here? And what, what do you know? I begin to do some research and I find out the Episcopalians were sort of uh, point men in this regard. I found out about Lambeth 1930 and I gave a talk here a couple of years ago. I guess it was a number of talks about that conference. And what it did essentially was for the first time in the history of Christianity, Christians said that contraception could be used licitly. And that quickly led to Anglicans declaring that contraception was a right. They did that in the 50s. And by 1967, the Episcopal Church was lobbying for the legalization of elective abortion. I didn't know any of this. Of course, they don't teach this at Episcopal Seminary. It's at Yale Divinity School, and there's not like a class on how uh, we've been promoting legalized abortion. I found this out doing my own research. At the same time, I'm being horrified by the culture of death by reading the Holy Father's encyclicals. 
I'm finding out that the, the role that Anglicans played in it, and I began to see that what I believed did not accord with what my denomination taught, the church that I had been a part of since I was an infant, since I had been baptized in um, 1971. What, what the Episcopal Church taught did not accord with what I actually believed. And in fact, at the time, my wife and I, as I was discovering this too, another, my wife and I were serving on the Pennsylvanians for Human Life board. I was like the token Protestant in a sea of Catholics. There were a couple other uh, faithful Protestants, but I can tell you I was the only Episcopalian. So I decided to do some continuing education in 2002. And my mother sent me up this uh, family honor conference in South Carolina. And I decided to go to it, and it was a retreat, really, on the theology of the body. And for the first time, I was really exposed to that tome that the Holy Father wrote between 1979 and 1984. He would offer a Wednesday audience explaining Humana Vitae from 1968. Uh, Blessed John Paul II explained it, except for those months that he was recovering from being shot. Every Wednesday, he would talk about this between 1979 and 1984. And then they put it all together. It was a book... I recommend highly uh, The Theology of the Body. And read it for yourself. Don't read what other people say it says. Read it. Amazing work. Uh, ultimately, it changed my life. At the same time, I'm, I'm becoming exposed to the gospel of life, finding out about the Episcopal history and the contributions to the culture of death. My wife and I were struggling to conceive. We got married in 1996, but we didn't uh, have our first child until 2002. And we lost one in that time, but for, there was a four-year period there where my uh, wife didn't conceive at all. And so I was just uh, totally at a loss, frustrated. Uh, I wasn't angry. I think I was, I was angry about seeing people who could have children choose not to. I was angry about people sterilizing themselves. I was angry about people using contraception. Well, my wife and I so desperately wanted to get pregnant. I said, how can you do this when you can have a baby and you, and you don't even want one? That really upset me. But I was more sort of perplexed. I was vexed. I didn't know why, why when all these other people don't want to have kids and they get pregnant by accident, all these other people are having abortions. I said, why aren't we having a child? I was in my church and there was only one, as I was still Episcopal pastor, there was only one window of the Blessed Mother in the whole church, but it happened to be in a place where I could pray and nobody would bother me. So I would go there and I'd pray the daily office and no one could actually see that I was there so I was able to pray and not get interrupted. And one day in my frustration, I said, Mary, help me. And looking at that window, I said, Mary, help me. And a month later, Christina conceived. So obviously that was a great <laughs> boost to my faith. But it was the first time I'd ever prayed to the saints. It was the first time... I had ever had a petition that I asked a saint to intercede for me, and of course it was Blessed Mother. About a year after Christina gave birth, there was an incident that was a straw that broke the camel's back for a lot of Episcopalians. But before I describe that, I want to talk to you about the difference between the occasion for my conversion and the reason for my conversion. There were many occasions, and whenever you hear something that sort of pushed me away from Anglicanism, that sort of propelled me away from falsehood, that sort of turned me closer to the truth by virtue of being so ridiculously wrong. Whenever you hear that, that's like an occasion for my conversion. But that is not the reason for my conversion. Don't uh, ever misunderstand me. I'd never, I did not become a Catholic because of Anglicanism's 
contributions to the culture of death. Those are only reasons to reject Anglicanism. They are not reasons to become a Catholic. The reason for my conversion are different, and I'm going to get to those very explicitly, but reasons are why you embrace something true and which was, for me, new. Occasions for my conversion simply led me to consider something else. That incident that happened in 2003 was the election and confirmation as a bishop in the Episcopal Church, a man who had left his wife and two children, moved in with another man and was living an unchaste life. And so for the first time, the Episcopal Church had approved a man, knowing that he was unchaste, to serve in the office of bishop. So all kinds of things went crazy in the Episcopal Church. Congregations began to try to leave, and people began to think of defensive strategies, how they defend themselves against their liberal bishops, etc., etc. It just became sort of a theological chaos. And in the midst of that, a, a number of uh, Anglicans who considered themselves to be conservative and wanted to hold the line on the church's teaching on human sexuality had a retreat near Havre de Grace in Maryland, right on the Chesapeake Bay. And I decided to go to that so that I could network and get to know other guys that thought the same way I did, and we could fight the good fight within the Episcopal Church together. So I uh, went down to this retreat and found that they were uniformly against abortion. They were uniformly against unchastity with regard to extramarital relations, premarital relations, homosexual relations. They were very firm in that regard. But then I began to raise the question when I would have these talks, it always happens on retreats, you get to talk with your fellow retreatants, and, and I brought the issue of contraception up, and to a man they thought contraception was a great blessing. And by this time I'd say, well, where we are now happened because we accepted contraception. The reason we're accepting homosexual relations is because we accepted contraception, because if you can say that relations that are intentionally infecund are blessed, well then naturally you're going to eventually say that relations that are inherently infecund are blessed. That's all that happened. It's not a really big leap in terms of logic. It took them 73 years to get there. The Lambeth was 1930, where they approved contraception, intentionally infecund relations. That's when they said those are blessed. It only took them 73 years to say inherently infecund relations are blessed. So I was so bewildered by, by what was happening to me, I got on a kayak and I went out in the middle of the Chesapeake Bay and... and uh, I actually went past the shipping. Those are those things that float in the water tell you don't go past here, you know, because that's where the ships come. <laughs> and they came out in their boat, motor boat, and they're like, Father, you need to come back closer, you know. But I was out on that boat, and I realized I can't be Episcopalian anymore. I have to become Catholic. So I went back home. I told my wife. She said, well, you're right, we do. <laughs> and uh, I decided to resign when I resigned, I, I said, I will leave on December 31st, but if you don't know what you're going to do, if you're at a loss now that your conservative pastor has decided to abandon this sinking ship, if you want to uh, talk to me about what you're going to do, please come talk to me. And a bunch of people did, and uh, I told them I was going to become Catholic, and some people said, oh my gosh, ah, you know. Um, <laughs> others said, well, I, I want to become Catholic too, Father. So, about half of my parish ended up entering into catechetical classes. So I had met this guy uh, when I was a kid even. Uh, we kept in contact. We were family friends. Joe Blake, who was the head of the Anglican Youth Society. And he gave me 
a book called The Book of Divine Worship, which had been published only a few years before, and it had within it the Anglican liturgy for Catholics. That is to say, we celebrate a liturgy that is of the Roman Rite, but it's different because it is familiar to Anglicans, so the liturgy is not a stumbling block for them. So when an Episcopalian comes into our Mass, it's something that he's known his whole life. And uh, approved by the Holy Father, given his imprimatur, So Joe gave me this book, and I was able to show it to my parishioners and say, listen, if we become Catholic, we don't have to give up our liturgy, our hymnody, we don't have to give up those parts of our spiritual treasure that we love so much. And so all kinds of people jumped at the chance, really, to have this journey with me. At the same time, I knew about the pastoral provision from a man named uh, Father Jim Parker, whom I had met at that family honor conference in 2002. So I knew that there was a possibility that I might be able to be ordained a Catholic priest even though I was married. And so with the information that I got from Joe Blake and Father Jim Parker, I went to see the bishop. I talked to him about my desire to enter into the pastoral provision process with the possibility that I might be ordained a Catholic priest, taking nothing for granted. And Bishop Martino said, well, I indeed will sponsor you. Bishop Martino is the retired bishop from Scranton. He now lives in uh, Philadelphia. We have a new bishop since that time, Joseph Bambera. But Bishop Martino was happy to take me in, and he said, listen, don't be surprised if nobody comes with you, because I've been through this before when I was in Philadelphia. I was the ecumenical officer for the diocese, Archdiocese of Philadelphia, and when another guy came and did this to me, his entire parish turned on him, and he ended up uh, moving to Ohio. Well, I went to see him four weeks later, and I told him, well, Bishop, not only am I coming, but I have 15 families at the time that are coming with me. And he says, all right. So they began the process, and they assigned me to Monsignor uh, William Felkamp, who was the pastor at the time of St. Clair Church in the Green Ridge section of Scranton. And he decided also to assign Father Charles Connor of EWTN fame uh, to be our catechetical instructor. He's now teaching at uh, Mount St. Mary's in Emmitsburg. But he was the catechetical instructor for our group, and we were reconciled to the church on All Saints' Eve 2005. And most of you call that day Halloween, right? (laughs) So what we learned within our catechism, and one of the things that I was happy to be able to articulate, is that we learned from our catechism that unity did not mean uniformity. The Holy Father was taking us in and not asking us to leave our gifts at the door. He was instead saying, uh, your gifts are precious. In fact, that was made explicit in the Apostolic Constitution, Anglinorum Tredibus, in 2009. But this is even back in 2005. He's you know, saying to us, listen, all we have to do is confess the same faith that we find in the Catechism. And if our disciplines are a little different, you're a married priest and he's a celibate priest, that's all right. Uh, that you have smells and bells and they have a rock band, that's okay. Uh, That unity does not require uniformity. It was a great blessing to understand this because uh, we then understand then that doctrine is not the same as discipline. Uh, We all confess the same doctrine and that's our unity, but then our disciplines are different and this is where diversity is allowed. We have an understanding, of course, that in the Catholic Church there are 22 churches that make it up, right? The Melkite Church, the Maronite Church, Ruthenian Byzantine Church, etc., Chaldean Church in Iraq, and of course the Latin Church. There's one church in the West and there's 21 churches in the East. That means then that they have one catechetical book. We all confess the same catechism. And yet there's all these different ways to celebrate the one holy sacrifice of the Mass. How beautiful. 
That is the precise opposite of Anglicanism. In Anglicanism, there's one prayer book, and everybody has to use it. In America, no matter where you go, there's one prayer book. And yet, and yet, the theology from church to church is different. In fact, every Episcopal church, every um, city years ago would have two Episcopal churches, one that was low church, and they had no smells and bells, and they thought that the Eucharistic sacrifice was just a symbol, a representation. And then you had the Anglo-Catholic parish down the street, and they said, well, of course it's the body and blood of Christ. It's not a representation, it's a representation. And so you have two completely radically different theologies using the same book. Catholicism is precisely the opposite. One catechism, many different ways to offer the holy sacrifice to the Mass, and that to me was just open mind. It was mind-blowing, actually, for me, because uh, I had never understood that you could all, everybody in the church could believe the same thing. I just sort of took it for granted that my neighbor might not actually believe that that's actually Jesus up there. So, after we were reconciled, we found out that not everybody in the Catholic Church was as thrilled to have us there as was when seeing Phil Camp. <laughs> and I got very sick. Uh, I, I actually almost died. I'm, I'm the only person in northeastern Pennsylvania who's received all seven sacraments. <laughs> so... Uh, And while I was recovering from my near-death experience, five families left our teeny little community. On uh, All Saints Eve 2005, we'd had 50 people come into the church at the same time. And so you can imagine that's not many families, right? And in, in the course of about uh, two or three weeks while I was in the hospital and at home recovering, we lost uh, five families. And I found out, I, I had to call them up and say, why? I said, what, what, what's going on? They said, well, the, the parishioners at St. Clair's are asking us when we're going to become real Catholics. <laughs> and why do we use a different liturgy? Why can't we just say, do their Mass? So I brought this to Monsignor Felkamp, and uh, the mission was saved because he said, well, listen, we'll explain everything in a brochure, and we'll put it in the Easter leaflet. That's when everybody comes to church. And it was a four-page, fold-over, cardstock leaflet that we explained everything about our mission and ministry and what we hope to do by offering this other form of the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. And immediately the sniping stopped. And what we found then, of course, is that if we conceive of these different liturgies as being in competition with each other, it's going to issue in death. It almost killed our community. I mean, it decimated it initially but ultimately it was spared. And so we find this complementarity, if we understand that these two different uses of the Holy Sacrifice and the Mass complement each other, what we see is that, well, our liturgy is a means by which other people can be reconciled to the church. When we use our gifts and we use our hymns, we're going to bring more people into the church. And when you use your gifts, you're going to bring people into the church too. So we're simply the people that are being sent to reconcile the Protestants. We just have a different particular call. We have a different mission. Indeed, we have different gifts. But when we work together, the church is built up. But if we work against each other, things are going to fall apart. The analogy that I used is marriage. Complementarity, issues in life. A man and a woman come together, one flesh union, life. If they get divorced, obviously, 
they can't have any kids. They're not living together, right? And when they live in competition, we have death. When we live complementary lives, we have life. And so it applies to the church as well. So this uh, ultimately, um, this really did prove true in my life. This lesson about complementarity. I did not marry a Puerto Rican. <laughs> I married a Colombian. <laughs> and and uh, none of them are here tonight. Last year, a number of them came to the talk, but my eighth child was born on August 1st. And uh, my wife is worn out and actually wasn't able to make tonight, nor could she really juggle the infant and my uh, one-year-old at the same time, so she decided to stay back tonight, but I'd love for you to meet her. My eldest, as I said, was born in 2002, so she's 11, and my youngest is a little over a month old. We've been very blessed by accident, in many ways. I left the life of competition behind and entered into a life uh, dedicated to complementarity, and so we've been blessed with life, and we've been blessed with the uh, opportunity to give life to the world by uh, being open to life. So in the church, what I found was the solution to the disorder that I encountered in my youth. Bethlehem is not the only community in America that is afflicted with the disorder that I described. And I also came to understand that this order that we desire for people and for communities, for our society, cannot be imposed. The whole problem with the way I grew up, the whole problem that I had going through a very difficult experience at Liberty High School in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, was that we were trying to force each other to do what we thought was right. We were trying to impose our will upon each other through violence. And what we know from the church's long experience is that might doesn't make right. How often has the blood of the martyrs been the seat of the church? The church is still here. The Roman Empire is gone, right? The church is still here. The Soviet Empire is gone. The church is still here and the British Empire is gone. That's beautiful. And what we learn is that people will embrace a compelling alternative to death. Eventually, we realize we can't live this way forever. And what I did as a young man experiencing that horrible violence, what I did was uh, run away. I came to your loving arms. But that doesn't really change anything. The violence is still happening. I just happened to escape it. So after my conversion, both the first one in London and now my conversion to the faith now, today, I understood that rather than fleeing the environment that had scarred me, uh, I need to return to it. Our hope is that we will be witnesses to those who are living in moral squalor, that by our presence 
in Scranton, which is not Bethlehem, but has many characteristics in common with it. We can be a witness to those who are living in moral squalor so that by our very presence among them, we can propose an alternative way of life. That people who are living in moral squalor will see the way that we live and say, that looks a lot more attractive than what I'm experiencing day to day. We understand, finally, that our neighbors don't need to be defeated. They need to be converted. And we are going to accomplish this when we tell them what we love and why we love. And, of course, when we show them the fruit of our love. We are in the Providence uh, section of the city of Scranton, and we bought a church that the Diocese of Scranton closed. It was a Lithuanian personal parish, along with the Polish personal parish and the Italian personal parish and the Magyar personal parish. They were all closed, and uh, they were melded into the local territorial parish. But the Bishop of Scranton, uh, Bishop Joseph Ambera, very generously allowed us to purchase St. Joseph Church and move into it. And I have with me here um, holy cards that show you the St. Joseph altar. We have a St. Mary altar. And we have a high altar. You can actually go on the website here and get a whole beautiful uh, panoramic view of the entire edifice. It's absolutely stunning. I'll leave these up here for you to take them if you'd like. And it has that prayer that I began tonight with on the anniversary of the dedication of our church. But my idea in going back into the city and living in the rectory adjacent to the church, my idea really is that we be an oasis of beauty to people who are living and experiencing daily ugliness. The Lord has been very good to us in reminding us that the particular things that we grew up knowing aren't just done to us willy-nilly. There's no purpose, no purpose at all to why I would have experienced those things in Bethlehem. We experienced them so that we could use them to proclaim the gospel to people in a similar circumstance. I didn't experience them so I could run away from them. I experienced them so that I could go back and hopefully reconcile the Holy Mother Church. Many people who are looking, as I was when I was 17 years old, for a better way of life. And I hope that they might find our church, find this oasis of beauty, and instead of flee, as I did, stick around and try and transform the place where they live so that it is no longer a place of violence and competition but one of peace and reconciliation. And of course, as I said, the Lord has provided us a place in Providence. If you want to see where our church is, just type in on your phone. You have a phone like I do? iPhone. Type in Providence, Pennsylvania and the pin goes to where our church is. It'll say Scranton because it's a neighborhood in Scranton. But if you type in Providence, Pennsylvania, it'll show you right. You don't even have to look on our website to get to our church. All you have to do is type it in your phone. It's amazing. So the Lord has provided a place in Providence, and I, I couldn't be more grateful. Thank you. Thank you very much, Father, for a wonderful presentation, for explaining your story to us. For those that have their Bibles out, open up to Mark chapter 8 with me. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. 
And he called to him the multitude with his disciples and said to them, If any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? For what can a man give in return for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come in power. I wanted to conclude this two-part series on conversion with that text for a reason, because we are placed in this world, as Father says, to be an opportunity for the conversion of that world, not simply to flee it. Yes, in our own lives, we leave the world behind, but we are called to be in that world a light to the nations and the salt of the earth. And if we are not, as I said last week, if our society is dark, if it is tasteless, if Christ is not present there, then we need look no further than ourselves to ask ourselves the question, are we as a church converting the world? And the church consists of the members of the body of Christ. We don't need to look at our priests all the time and say, it's his job. Yeah, it is his job, but it's your job too, and it's my job as a deacon. And if we don't do this together, then the body of Christ will not be healthy, will not be walking upon this earth. The hands and feet of Jesus Christ will not be present in our world. And so I think we have an opportunity now after these two wonderful stories of conversion to reflect upon our own life and to ask ourselves, are we following Christ? Are we taking up his cross? Are we proud, proud to say we are Christians? Because when you are proud of something, you carry it high. You put it on your shoulder. You put it on the bumper of your car. Every person you talk to, you tell them about it. When the ladies will know, when you have a baby, what do you talk about for the next year? You talk about your baby because it is the thing you are most proud of. And fathers, you know that too. We are to be proud of Christ. We are to be proud of the cross. It is time as followers of Jesus, as Catholics, that we become proud of our faith. And take that faith back out into the world with pride and with joy. And when we do that, when we start living again as Catholics, not just saying the words, but living as Catholics, then, my dear friends, I would say that the problems our society faces will be run out of town. Because where there is light, there is no darkness. Amen? Amen. Okay. All right, we'll take a short break, two to three minutes. If you can't stay around, we'll see you next Sunday. God bless you. Uh, Father, you mentioned that uh, your parish is serving as an oasis there in Scranton, the idea being to try to influence the rest of the community. Can you comment as to what kind of a reaction you're getting on that? Have you been able to, to see any particular changes yet, or is it too soon for that? I think that it's ultimately the, the program is going to take years 
I have been able to convince a number of people to move into the city, though. I had a lady that was living uh, just outside in the suburbs, and she would commute about uh, 20 minutes to Mass, sometimes daily. And she recently sold her house and moved. She's not in Providence. She's in Westside, but she's only two miles from the church. Uh, but she was able to buy a house there for $35,000. And, and, and uh, she did that intentionally to be close to the parish. Also, my sister, I got her to move all the way from Montana. Uh, <laughs> And my sister-in-law actually left Fairfax County and moved, and she now lives in Scranton, too, with her family. So the goal, really, is to get people who can be living witnesses of a different way of life, living amidst the people who are in need of the gospel of life. I've gotten three people so far, but then the the idea is, of course, to expand it and then really become a Catholic community with our parish being at the center of it in the city. Father, we have a um, question coming in online from Thomas. Right from Northern Virginia, so I'm wondering why Thomas is not with us this evening live, <laughs> but I will ignore that. And I'm going to just edit his question just a little bit, because I think I'm, I, I know what he's getting at. He says, Father Bergman, how should Catholics respond to high church Episcopalians or Anglicans who join continuing Anglican many churches and believe they are Catholic? What can a Catholic say to these about the fact that they haven't actually joined the Catholic Church, but that they believe that they are Catholics? I have pictures in the uh, church of children to look at them. One picture is the Holy Father, and the other is our ordinary. It used to be Bishop Bambera, now it's Monsignor Steenson. But you say, how do you know that you're a Catholic? Well, if you're in communion with your bishop who's in communion with the Holy Father. It's very simple. And if your bishop is not in communion with the Holy Father, then you're not Catholic. There's a lot of churches that uh, describe themselves in this way. Anglo-Catholics aren't the only ones to do it. Uh, There's other people that, uh, like old Catholics and so forth. But really, this is an objective way to figure out if you're Catholic. Are you in communion with the bishop who's in communion with the Holy Father? And I am in communion with Monsignor Jeffrey Seenson, who is ordinary, the person ordinary of the Church of St. Peter, and he's in communion with the Holy Father, therefore that makes me Catholic. And it's true for all laymen as well. Uh, Father, how did your parents react when you converted? Did you have fruitful conversations with them during your conversion? Uh, They became Catholic. (laughs) Actually, the day that we, the the day that I was received into the church, my sisters had come into the church first in 1997, then in 2001. I'm one of five, as I said. So two of my sisters became Catholic before me. In 2005, I became Catholic on the same day as my brother and my parents. That's four, so two sisters, then my brother and me, and then my, the fifth, my youngest sister, uh, became Catholic in 2006. So now the whole family's Catholic. And, not <laughs> and my parents have 32 grandchildren with two on the way. <laughs> so I'm not the only one in the family with a big family. Well, my question is more or less related to that. You were saying there's a difference in the liturgy between the Episcopalian and the Catholic. So what is that? I know it's something minor, but what is the difference? One of the things that really uh, stands out for people who come to our Mass is that in a typical Roman Rite Mass, you come in and you immediately confess your sins, right? And the idea is that you are purifying yourself in preparation to worship. And in our liturgy, we have a collect for purity where we ask the Lord to purify our hearts and minds. But we don't say the confession of sins until just before the Eucharistic prayer. And that is because the scripture verses that we hear and the sermon that we hear are supposed to convict us of our sins so we know what to confess. 
So then we say what we've done wrong, having been convicted while we're at Mass. We then have immediately uh, the peace, because the peace comes from God. The only way that we can have peace with each other is because we have peace with God. We made peace with Him, then we kept peace with all those who are at peace with God. So the peace right now is in a different place, and uh, the confession of sins is in a different place. But it's for a liturgical reason. And of course, then also, we say the peace before the offertory because in St. Matthew chapter 5 it says, Make peace with your brother. If you remember that you have uh, something against your brother, leave your gift at the altar, then go make peace with him, and then come back. Right? And so we don't give our money until we made peace with our brother. But remember, also, the Roman version is fine too because what's the ultimate offering? Yourself. So you make peace with your brother, right? in the Roman rite, before you bring yourself to the altar, yourself as gift, to present yourself as gift before the altar to receive Holy Communion. So it's just different ways, again, different disciplines of doing the same thing. Father, uh, does Anglicanorum Cetibus, could that conceivably serve as a precedent for any of the other Protestant denominations? It could, if they sort of gather up together and say, yes, we want this too. One of the things that... Uh, uh, was said that maybe this is being considered for Lutherans and prefect for the congregation of the doctrine of the faith says, well, they haven't asked us. <laughs> so the reason that Anglican Omtredibus was written for Anglicans who wanted to be reconciled to the Holy Mother Church is that they asked for it. And the Holy Father, Pope Benedict, the, our Pope Emeritus, he said it, it was a movement of the Holy Spirit. These requests, these continued requests, was a movement of the Holy Spirit. So if the Holy Spirit inspires some group of Protestants to ask for reconciliation in a similar manner, well, we could certainly see an ordinary, for say, former Lutherans. Uh, but Methodists and uh, African Methodist Episcopalians have been included under ours because they came out of Anglicanism. And so Episcopalians, Methodists, and African Methodist Episcopalians, they all look the same to Rome. In America, we make distinctions, but to Rome, they all look the same. They all came from the Church of England. Father, we have a question coming in from Pennsylvania, which I'm going to, again, twist just slightly because I think you answered some of it. How difficult is it for cradle Catholics to embrace your Anglican patrimony as beautiful as it is in our universal church? And I know you spoke a little bit about that in regards to the laity and their reaction to the situation, but what about the priests? How have you found your fellow priests and their reaction to your entrance into the church? The reaction in terms of people who talk to me is uniformly positive. Everybody that talks to me and to my face tells me how happy they are that the Holy Father has done this amazing work, how happy they are Pope Francis is supporting it as well. Pope Francis has really expanded the number of people who can be members of the ordinariates, so he's a great supporter of it too. The ones who don't like it uh, don't talk to my face, you know, so I hear what they say. I would love one of them to talk to me because then I might be able to have a conversation and tell them why it's so awesome and how it is truly a work of God and a blessing from the Holy Spirit. But all of the priests I've ever talked to about this have just been overjoyed at how many people are being moved to seek reconciliation to Holy Mother Church. Father, are you able to celebrate a Mass in the Roman Catholic Church? And if so, do you have to vary your method? Indeed, our church is a Roman Catholic. I mean, one of the things we have to be careful is when we use that term Roman Catholic, Really, there's no such thing. There's really just Latin Catholics, Maronite Catholics, Melkite Catholics, Ukrainian Catholics. Uh, most of us here, not the deacon. Uh, <laughs> most of us here are Latin Catholics. So since I am a Latin Catholic priest, 
naturally I can say the Roman Rite Mass. And so I can say the Novo Soto. Since I don't have command of Latin, I can't actually say the 1962 Missal Mass. But I can say, and I do, in fact, on a regular basis, priests from the Diocese of Scranton ask me to fill in for them, and I do it. And, of course, when I do it, we observe disciplines that are common in the, in the Latin Catholic churches. So, for example, I face the people when I say Mass. In my own liturgy, I face the same direction as everybody else. We face God together. In my liturgy, we kneel at an altar rail to receive Holy Communion on the tongue. But, of course, if I'm in a Roman Rite parish, I will, of course, administer communion in the hand. People present themselves that way. I'm not by ritual because it isn't a different rite. But I can celebrate two different liturgies competently, I think. You'll have to see me do both. I don't know. I, I think... <laughs> I think I do. I think I do an okay job. Thank you very much, Father. Thank you. I know I've had a number of people ask me, Deacon Sabatino, when are we going to have a talk on the different, uh, the different rites of the church and so forth, and, and that is in our curriculum coming up. So there's your little sneak preview. That's all you get, though. <laughs> all right. God bless you. I'll see you next Sunday. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.